Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 163 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So good morning, Matt. Good morning, Mark. Uh, Before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on August 17th. And this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index up 3.5% for the month and down 10.3% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average up also 3.5% for the month and down 6.5% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 4.4% for the month and down 17.3% for the year. The iShares Russell 2000 ETF uh, is up 5.5% for the month and down 11.2% for the year. And the Vanguard All World X United States ETF up 0.8% for the month and down 15% for the year. So, um, like we've seen the common theme over the past decade, really, Matt, um, international still really not the place to be right now. Doesn't seem that way, does it? No, it doesn't. Uh, three month Treasury yield at 2.68%, the two year Treasury rate at 3.28%, and the 10 year Treasury yield at 2.89%. Uh, moving on to big headlines and current events from the week uh, a welcome CPI report, Matt. So last week's CPI report came in better than expected, and month over month CPI was flat for the first time since May of 2020. Uh, Our good friend Ryan Dietrich made a comment that in June, CPI was plus 1.3% month over month, and that is now at 0%. And that is the second largest month over month decline in CPI in 70 years. Well, I mean, we talked about inflation earlier in the year, you know, my theory all along was sometime in Q2, it was going to peak and we're not going to really know this stuff until retrospect. But the data is telling us that right now. Yeah, it is. Yeah, you're seeing prices come in. Energy prices are, are slowly starting to come in. So um, rents slowing down. Yeah. Yep. So and the market mm-hmm. rallied on that news. Yep. So that's awesome. Um, and again, that you know, what does that signal, you know, for the larger economy or the market going forward? Is that if inflation is coming down quicker than people are expecting? That may mean that the Fed might not have to be as aggressive with their rate rate hikes through the rest of the year, and that you know, normalization and possibly even rate cutting could occur sometime in 2023. That and it puts more money in the consumer's pocket, which they're more more likely to spend. Yes, exactly. Um, Lastly, uh, some China economic data. So um, China's economy uh, not growing as it has been the past several years. Retail sales grew by 2.7% in July from a year ago. Uh, that's according to the National Bureau of Statistics versus 5% growth forecast by Reuters. Uh, industrial production rose by 3.8%, which also mixed, missed expectations of plus 4.6%. Slower growth data out of China is helping certain commodities sell off further, such as oil, as global growth estimates uh, 
are likely to be revised lower. Yeah. So yeah. why, I mean, I guess, why is it noteworthy to mention the China economic data, you think? I think first and foremost is they've been such a, um, a consumer of raw commodities. And as commodities kind of got uh, really hot after the Russia-Ukraine invasion, and it's been such a big component in our inflation data that if they are going to be slowing down and they are going to be consuming less raw commodities, metals, energy, that's going to definitely Fact help pricing. inflation. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so again, more, I think... All in all, right now, the news for inflation is getting better and better, um, which is a welcome thing for a lot of people. And I have an update uh, on kind of supply chain and commodities in a little bit here for everyone. Okay. Moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. The first thing I had was a tweet from Steven Straza, um, and it was a chart of the S&P 500, and below it is a chart of the percent of companies in the S&P 500 that are trading above their 200-day simple moving average. I like this chart, right? So it takes you know the simple move, the 200-day simple moving average of you know any tradable security is just the average price over the last 200 days, right? So Correct. add up all the prices, divide it by 200. Yep. And typically, when stocks are above their 200-day moving average, that's defined as that stock being in a quote-unquote uptrend. And vice versa, when it's below its 200-day moving average, some would say that that is considered a downtrend, okay? So what this chart shows is that each time the S&P 500, the amount of uh, companies in the index that are trading uh, above their 200-day moving average goes down to about 10 or 15%, that has done a pretty good job over the past decade in calling a, uh, a bottom for the market after a sell-off, right? So uh, not too long ago, there was only 15% of the companies in the S&P 500 that were trading above their 200-day moving average. Pretty, pretty bearish. It's pretty bearish, right? There's a lot of negative sentiment baked into that. So typically, you know, and on this chart that I'll have Jenna throw up on the, on the YouTube page that Steven is pointing out, Something that we also talk about in our um, our Monday investment committee meetings. Yes, sir. Um, that each time we get to you know this amount of deterioration in the percentage of stocks above their 200-day moving average, usually does a good sign within a month or two of calling uh, a low. So again, just more data that is providing us clues that we think the worst is behind us. Absolutely. And the thing I kind of been mentioning to clients is. You know, just because we kind of perceive things getting better in general doesn't mean that every month or every quarter the market's going to be higher, right? But I definitely think, in my opinion, I do think the market bottomed, depending upon the index in June, and that we are going to kind of restart this kind of two-step forward, one-step back one step back mentality with the market in general. Yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, just by looking at this chart, you're like, oh, it, I mean, it already got pretty bad. How much, how much worse can it get? Um, so again, uh, just an interesting chart that we follow. I wanted to share with, uh, listeners there. Second thing I had was a tweet from Ryan Dietrich on August 8th. Uh, Ryan said, I learned a long time ago that the credit markets tend to sniff out trouble before everyone else. Various spreads continue to tighten, not blow out a potential nice sign for both the economy and stock market. So he posted this chart of 
credit spreads. And I just want to remind listeners what we mean when we talk about credit spreads, sure. right? So credit, sp- credit spreads indicate the credit risk perceived by participants or investors. So credit spreads are the difference between the yield or the interest rate on junk or speculative grade bonds and a U.S. Treasury bond. So, for example, you know, if uh, if the yield on a a junk bond is five percent, the yield on a a comparable U.S. Treasury bond is two percent, that credit spread is three percent. That's right. The difference. Right. And then additional interest is to compensate the investor for the additional risk. Correct. Correct. And when the financial conditions of a bond issuer deteriorate, the probability of default increases right Mm -hmm. so if the company is not earning as much money their profit margins are getting squeezed they're not growing like they had in the past they have to provide lenders with an additional incentive to buy their debt right and Mm -hmm. they do that in the form of issuing debt with higher interest rates right so you know um in our world, we define this as credit spreads blowing out. So when when junk bonds have really, really high interest rates, that is signaling to us that there's more risk of default by more than just one company. That's right. right because the perception in the marketplace is, hey, economic conditions could worsen, meaning there's a statistical chance that more companies are going to have problems repaying their debt. So people want to be compensated for that additional risk absolutely so and when credit credit spreads are tightening it means there's not as much risk because these companies can issue debt at lower interest rates so and again it's the opposite so in essence people are thinking general economic conditions are going to get better meaning that the likelihood of companies being able to repay their debt is getting better hence the risk in the perception of the marketplace is coming down correct so the rates come down correct so you know, what Ryan was getting at here is if there was still perceived to be a lot of risk in the market right now, yeah. you would continue to see credit spreads increasing, but they've actually rolled over over the past two months. Um, and you saw the same thing during COVID. I mean, I'll have Jenna again put this chart up for listeners, but you can see credit spreads blowing out right before COVID. And then again, they were slowly increasing kind of ever since January of this year. Mm-hmm. But now you're seeing what I call this change of trend. And again, I just think it provides uh, more evidence that going forward, at least over the next year, we're going to be in a more friendly environment than we were the past eight months. Well put. Only thing I would say is, remember, this is one of those kind of instances that kind of proves what I've said in the past, which is the market's forward looking. And in my opinion, I think the market in general is about nine months ahead of Main Street America. And this is one of those data points that I think supports that thesis. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lastly was a article from the Wall Street Journal titled Social Security Benefits are Heading for the Biggest Increase in 40 Years. So government better get their checkbook out. Yeah, that's right. Social Security recipients are on track to receive the highest cost of living increase in more than four decades next year. So Social Security checks get an inflation adjustment every year based on the consumer price index. Um, So, you know, other people might hear this referred to as COLA, which is just stands for cost of, cost of living adjustment. Mm-hmm. Um, so what Social Security does is they compare the average figures for July, August, and September to the index's average level over the same period a year earlier. Okay, 
So if inflation remains roughly around the current level it's at, Matt, on average over the next two months, then approximately 70 million retirees and disabled people who receive Social Security benefits could see their monthly checks rise by as much as 9.6%. So Social Security Administration isn't going to announce the official COLA um, until October of this year. But with the inflation data that we have today, I think there's pretty strong evidence that recipients are going to receive a nice little bump next year. So I think it'd be very welcomed. So the average or the hypothetical estimates as of right now is with a cost of living adjustment of 9.6%, the average monthly Social Security check for retired workers would rise by about $160 in 2023 to about a little more than 1800 in January that was uh, would be up from a little more than 1600 hmm. uh, from 2022. So um, with all of the bad inflation news, if inflation, if we're right and inflation has peaked and has begun to roll over, this is a good news for people that are receiving Social Security. Absolutely. So uh, be on the lookout for that. And again, once we get that formal announcement, from the government on one that what that cola is going to be will let everybody know on what they can expect for next year in terms of social security payments thanks for bringing that up mark so i'll turn it over to you i got about four items this week for our viewers and listeners the first is what i want to call a round table topic between you and me mm. okay lovely the title of this topic is business confidence versus consumer confidence okay Now, the chart that Jenna's going to put up on YouTube for our viewers, and we'll um, uh, verbalize this for our traditional podcast listeners, and they can check out our show notes. This chart is from Mr. Thomas at uh, Top Down Charts, and he uh, published this on August 14th, Mark. And it is a chart going back to 1990 that overlays two different things. It shows business confidence and consumer confidence on a global level. And what it's really showing is a stark kind of decoupling between consumer confidence eroding, especially over the past year, but business confidence for the most part has only eroded, I'd say about a third as much. Mm -hmm. So you're seeing when you look at this chart, a very stark difference And if you look at this, the only similar time period was 94 on this chart. And I'll remind people that 94 was a period of time where the uh, Fed was aggressively raising interest rates was the last time they did it this quick into this magnitude. Right. So that's really my first viewpoint. I wanted to start a roundtable with you on when you see this chart, what comes to mind for you? Well, it kind of makes me think of... um something that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, and that's uh, insider buying. (laughs) Um, I think people that work at or that are insiders at publicly traded companies are on on the C-suite, which I'm assuming this is, you know, this business confidence versus consumer confidence is surveying. They have a lot better view than the normal individual walking down the street on what's going to happen over the next 12 months. That's right. Right. So I guess my first opinion is this is the quote unquote smart money isn't pricing in as bad of an economic environment as most others in the country are. 
hence they are very active in purchasing their company's stock because they seem to be pretty optimistic. Absolutely. And when do people make the majority of their money? When uh, they're transitioning, equities are transitioning from the weak hands to the strong hands. And I know that's something that's cliche to say, but when people are scared and they don't want to buy stocks, that's when people make their money because their outlook is a lot more rosy than what the mainstream media is telling everybody in this country, I think. Agreed. So again, in my opinion, just another, yet another piece of evidence that things might not be as bad as people were thinking. And that tends to be the case for most things, right? Mm -hmm. I think people overreacted in COVID. People overreacted in the sell-off in 2019. it's just one of those things where I think once you break it down and look at the data, you want to be listening to the people that are running some of the largest companies in America rather than somebody on TV telling you how bad things are going to get. Well put. My opinion. The other comment that I have to finalize this topic is on the consumer confidence front, consumer spending, though things got a little nuts, uh, I would say, at the end of Q2 with inflation of you know general products. Consumer spending is not completely broke down. No. So I think you see these surveys where people are like, things are horrible. I'm really pessimistic. And then they're going out and spending like a drunken sailor. So it's like they're speaking out of both sides of their mouth when you look at the data. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing that kind of when I saw this, I thought about I wanted to share with you. Any any comment? There? Yeah. And again, I'm sorry to, to you know relate this to something else that we talk about all the time. But what someone says and when someone what someone does are two separate things, right? So you can talk to a hedge fund manager or you can talk to to somebody on CNBC and they can tell you what they think is going to happen. But I really, for lack of a better word, I don't give a crap what they (laughs) think is going to happen or what they're saying on TV. I want to look at an investor and see what they're actually doing. If they're out there rah-rahing saying this is going to be the worst recession since 2008, but they're buying stock, then it's like, wait a second, something something doesn't add up here. Well put. Right? You know, there's a couple firms out there, I'm not going to name names, that historically people will sit there and say um, that they tend to do the opposite. Hey, we should be selling equities, and next thing you know, they're accruing behind the scenes, mm-hmm. so then they can do the opposite. We've seen it. We've seen it before, and if yeah. people don't think that happens, then you're fooling yourself. Yeah. Because they put all this fear out there and... Take advantage of take it. Take advantage, and the rich just keep it getting richer. Right? Well put. All right, my next piece is NASDAQ performance after the first confirm bull market close. I think you're going to eat this up. Okay. Okay. So um, Jenna will put this chart on uh, for our YouTube viewers. And uh, for those that are listening through traditional podcast venues, this will be in our show notes. So this is a chart from Bespoke Investment Group. It was published in their weekly research note mark on August 12th. And it shows that the NASDAQ achieved a formal 20% rally off of its June 16th low, which technically means we're in a new bull market for the NASDAQ. I'll say it one more time. We're in a bull market for the NASDAQ. (laughs) And it's still down 14.5%. I got to take my wins where I can get them. (laughs) So what I love about this is this data set goes back to 74. You're going to see, what do you think, 15 or so different data sets on this? Mm Mm-hmm. Why am I highlighting this? With these different data sets going back to 1974, once the NASDAQ enters a new confirmed bull market based upon a close, the average forward-looking return six months later is, drumroll, 13.9%. 
And drum roll 12 months later, 22.6. Yet another statistical piece of data. I'm not saying it's going to be positive over the next six or 12 months. I'm looking at a group of historical raw data that points that things tend to be positive once this occurs. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's just, you know, it's kind of like the strength begets strength. You know, like people, most people would see this and be like, oh my God, it rallied 20% in this short period of time. It, it's way overdone. Can't go, can't go any higher than this. <laughs> well said. Right. And it's, and it's healthy to see, like we talked about last week, the participation in this 20% increase from the low is very broad, meaning there's a lot of, a lot of stocks participating in this rally. Yes. And it would be a lot weaker in my opinion, if it was just, you know, the, the largest, 10 companies in the NASDAQ that were propping this thing up, but it's not the case. Well said. So again, I, I do really think that this is all of this data that we've been talking about and putting together is kind of setting up for this perfect storm that I think might catch some people by surprise that we could be going into a pretty strong period for the market over the next year. Well said. I have additional comments I can throw out there, but I think you did a good job there. So my next thing is, uh, as I had verbally previewed at the beginning, at the top of the podcast about uh, supply chain and about commodities, I have a really good piece. And I'll be curious to see, A, if you've seen this and if you have what your comment is, okay? So uh, this is a chart also in the weekly note from Bespoke Investment Group on August 12th. Uh, Jenna will put this up uh, for our YouTube viewers, and it's available on our show notes for those on the traditional podcast. Uh, I just want to make one more point because I didn't see this chart until I just scrolled down a little bit more. But yep. um, it's it, it shows the average like bear market for the Nasdaq, and the average bear market for the Nasdaq is thirty five and a half percent. Yeah, and that's it. We were down thirty four percent. So I just want to make this clear that. That was a average bear market this year. Yes. And so to be I specific, want people to know that this is good. Let's go back to it. Sorry, I, didn't, I just missed it. No, this is great. So what Mark is highlighting is the the high water mark that the market makes to its lowest point in the valley on average for the Nasdaq going back to 74 mm -hmm. is 35 and a half percent. And in the latest bear market this year. It was 34 even. That's okay. an average. That's an average bear market. You, 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 you hit it. So I guess another way to say this is viewers and listeners. If you want to know what a normal bear market feels like. This was it. Guess what? You <laughs> felt it. But I think you know what the difference is. It's that usually they last longer in time. And I think this one was so consolidated and so quick and mainly in three months. That's why it felt so much worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just that's very interesting. Yeah, I threw that, that out was... there. I didn't know if you ever want to see that stat. Yeah, Pretty cool, that's great. Yeah. Sorry. Continue on. I love it. I think this is why people enjoy listening to us. <laughs> All right. So my next piece is supply chain. So it's a chart from Bespoke Investment Group on August 12th. Uh, Jenna will put this chart up there, um, maybe for the second time now. And um, what it shows is ISM's services and manufacturing survey, where managers are saying what percentage of their commodities are in short supply. This is a monthly survey, and then they charted out, Mark, going back to the year 2000. Got it? Mm -hmm. So this is a percentage. It hit a peak 
in April of 2021, where managers were saying both manufacturing and services, 60% of the things they use were in short supply. That is, as you can see, Mark, mm -hmm. a historic high. Yep. Back in uh, 2006, it got as high as 20%. Back in 17, 18, it got as high as roughly 20%. And then obviously in that COVID environment, it, it peaked. You wanna guess what we're down to now? 26%. Yeah. So it's still well above the pre-COVID average, which is roughly about 5%. Mm -hmm. But again, another tea leaf of data that is telling you supply chains are getting better, which should have a direct effect on inflation, inflation which should have a direct effect on Fed's monetary policy. Mm -hmm. And I think with more predictability in monetary policy, the resiliency of corporate earnings that we saw in the second quarter recently, I think that's why you're seeing the market act the way it is. Yeah, I think it is too. I think it is too. That's great. Yeah. And, and again, People need to know that it's it's going to take some time to get back to normal for a lot of these things, right? Oh, Obviously, yeah. it's going to take some time for inflation to come back to no, quote unquote normal level. It's going to take time for the supply chain to get back to normal. And this is one of those things that it's just like, okay, I think it's pretty clear from this chart that the rate of trend on commodities and short supply is continuing to roll over and go down, which is very welcomed. And again, you know, the last thing I'll say on this topic is not every month or every quarter is going to be up and the recovery, you're going to have head fakes. You're going to have people come out on, you know, the news channels and say, listen, that's it. This is, this is a, a dead cat bounce. It's going to turn right around. You're going to, that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. You have to expect that's going to happen. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yep. Now, my last thing, uh, before we invite uh, Taylor to do the financial planning topic of the week is I have a rare and interesting viewpoint about treasury bonds from Bespoke Investment Group, okay? okay? So usually when I quote Bespoke, it is usually raw historical data that we can, in essence, find a similar situation in the past and kind of say, how have things reacted in those types of environments or in those circumstances? Well, this is an opinion, and I chuckled when I read it. And I said, if anyone in the office is gonna appreciate this, it's gonna be Mark McEvely. You ready for this? Hit me. Okay. Quote, given all the economic uncertainty and the rapid pace of tightening by the Federal uh, Reserve, volatility in the bond market has been reaching levels rarely seen in the last 20 years. Aren't treasuries supposed to act as a stable buffer? Lately, they're more volatile than equities. Treasury investors recognize the fact they tend to offer less upside with the trade-off of more stability. But when they don't get the stability, history shows that equities tend to benefit. Your yeah, reaction. Because why, why would people want to invest in something that has less upside that's going to be just as volatile or almost as volatile? Doesn't make any sense, right? And that's why I think it's, you know, this year I think is a very good learning opportunity for a lot of people to show that if you're getting sold a investment strategy or a product that has never had a negative year or has never been down more than 5%, it's pie in the sky. It doesn't exist. People didn't think bonds acted like this. And guess what? They do. They do. They can. They can. And again, it, 
probably for one or two percent of the time since the market's inception but this stuff happens there's no silver bullet there's no holy grail and again just because something has been stable the past however many recessions doesn't mean it's going to be stable this recession and guess what a perfect example of this yeah if you asked i would bet that if you asked 50 people that randomly out in the community yep what's the best hedge for inflation what would they say what would be the most the number one popular answer you think i'm biased because of what i do what do you think main street would say gold i was gonna guess i was gonna guess gold real estate or bonds was with be my three guesses yeah and and guess what gold has done this year nothing 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 it hasn't where's my where's my gold bulls right now right it hasn't been it hasn't been the inflation hedge that it once used to be so markets change and markets evolve and i think it's the same conversation with bonds people are so stressed out and pissed because of the way bonds are acting right now but this stuff happens we're not in the same economy or the same environment that we were in a decade ago or two decades ago or even when we went through the great financial crisis it's a different environment so i just think that just because all these different investment strategies have worked in the past doesn't mean they're going to work in the future and i think people just need to be cautious about that well said well said. And I appreciate Bespoke giving a rare opinion. It uh, definitely gave me a chuckle. So, mm-hmm. uh, And it also wouldn't surprise me. I'm not a prediction person, but it wouldn't surprise me if you see bonds rip the next two years. And it's going to be because everyone got out of bonds because they think they don't work anymore. <laughs> so just throwing that out there. <laughs> Which I don't think is remember, the case. I don't hey, think- remember the first half of the year, everyone's saying the 60-40 portfolio is dead, Mark. It's dead. It's not going to work anymore. Well, it's just a it's a it's a conundrum because it's like, okay, stocks are going down. So we we don't want to be in stocks. All right. Bonds. Bonds are going down just as much in some instances. Cash inflation's at almost 10 percent. So it's like you got to just roll with these punches. You just got to roll with the punches. You can't you can't make this 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 flip flop back and forth between all these different asset classes acting or expecting a different result. Well said. Well said. It's hard. Well, I, I thought this was a great podcast this week. I think yeah. it's time for our financial planning topic of the week. Anything yeah. you would like to part with before uh, Taylor comes on because you're gonna this is be your last uh, No, I don't think piece. so. I think um, we're at the tail end of earnings season here. We have a couple more big companies that are set to report uh, next week. And then after that, it should be pretty quiet for the next couple of months. But I think, you know, we're getting closer and closer to the fall, closer and closer to the midterm elections. Um Again, my base case scenario with all the data that I'm seeing is that, you know, over the next year, I think things should be pretty good. I think just looking at the markets, taking economic data out of it, things might be setting up for a pretty strong period, I think. Again, um, and that's based on everything that we talked about during today's podcast, the last couple of podcasts where we are in the presidential election cycle, about mm-hmm. to head into the sweet spot over the next 10 months-ish. Yep. Um, so I'm a glass half full guy, and I'm, I'm optimistic over Still the next several months. Still tons of cash months. on the sidelines, got to find a home. And then even if inflation normalizes, say, between 3 or 4% the next couple of years, you know, money sitting in the savings account earning a half a percent, it's just not going to work. It's not going to work. You're going to see it. a lot more money continue to come off the sidelines. Yeah, absolutely. So, all right, we'll thank you more with that. Be back next week for 164. Look forward to it. So, um, next up is our uh, usual financial planning topic of the week. 
uh, our fan favorite, uh, Taylor Ledbetter, is going to lead this uh, portion of the podcast. Uh, Taylor, welcome. Hey, it's good to be back. So uh, what do you have for our viewers and listeners this week? You always come up with good content. Let's see what you got this week. Yeah, so today I'm going to talk about um, different education accounts that you can use to help save for college. Great, let's dig into it. Um, so first, I'm just going to start off with a statistic, and this comes from the College Savings Plan Network. Okay. Um, they serve as a clearinghouse for information among state-administered college savings programs. Mm -hmm. um, so they said it's estimated that at an inflation rate of 6%, it will cost $261,000 to send a child who is a toddler in 2021 to an in-state public college for four years. It's probably a good thing that Mark just left the room because, <laughs> you know, at some point I, I think he'll have children and to hear that a toddler, 261 grand for an average four year state mm -hmm. in-state university. Yeah. Yeah, and it gets worse. So, oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. So, so, well, that so that number includes you know tuition, fees, room and board. Okay. Um, but after you account for inflation and then just education costs increasing every year. Yeah. Um, by the time that toddler is actually ready for higher education, it would be around five hundred and ninety-eight thousand. So what you're saying is when I see Mark later today <laughs> and I inform him that, hey, Taylor talked about, you know, educational savings account during the financial planning topic of the week. And just so you know, future baby McEvely, whenever that <laughs> happens, going to cost you in future dollars over about a half a million dollars, almost 600,000. You think I should record the reaction? Yes. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good Jenna, one. we got a good idea here. Okay. All right. So um, the, the first type of education savings account I'm going to talk about is a 529, which is the most popular one, I think. Um, so plans have high limits on contributions, which are made with after-tax dollars. Um, you can contribute up to the annual exclusion amount each year, which is 16000 for 2022. Okay. Um, and all withdrawals from the 529 are tax-free from, from federal income tax, um, as long as they are used for qualified education expenses. Um, so this was interesting. Those who have the funds can superfund a 529 plan by contributing five years of gifts at one time per child, per person, without being subject to gift tax. That's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. So like I just said, the annual um, limit for, for gift tax purposes is 16000 um, but you can contribute up to five years in the first year, if that makes sense. It does, ma'am. Mm -hmm. So um, that would be about $80,000 you can put in for the first year. Um, mm -hmm. And if you are married as a couple, you can do 160000 If you wanted to front load it. Correct. Mm -hmm. Correct. Yep. And so um, also, which this is really interesting with the 529, um, under the SECURE Act, you can also um, use those 529s to pay off up to $10,000 in student loans. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that was a great addition. I think it's a great addition. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, regarding 529s, there's not really too many limits. It's pretty basic. Yep. Um, I think that's why they're the most popular. 
So I would say the next popular would probably be called Coverdells. Um, so like 529s, they allow money to grow tax-deferred, um, and withdrawals are tax-free when used for qualified education expenses. Mm-hmm. Now, the main difference is that while more than one Coverdell can be set up for a single beneficiary, the maximum contribution per beneficiary, not per account, is limited to $2,000 per year. Yes. So quite a difference. Quite a difference. <laughs> Um, and there's also income phase-outs for Coverdells. Yes. So um, to contribute to a Coverdell, your modified adjusted gross income must be less than $110,000 um, as a single filer okay. and then less than 220000 as a married couple. Yes. Um, now, 529s don't have those income phase-outs, but Coverdells do. The one comment I'll make, are you going to talk about kind of the investments that can be selected from these types of uh, vehicles? We can. (laughs) Is that something you mind if I throw that out there? Sure. So one thing I want to throw out there about 529s is they tend to be state sponsored. So I'm going to pick on the state of Ohio where you and I reside, Taylor. So they have two potential vendors you can select from in Ohio, which is Vanguard and BlackRock. And it's neither a recommendation for or against either of those two entities, just what the state of Ohio has partnered with. Um, For example, I believe Virginia's uh, partnered with American funds. And so these states have partnered with different entities to kind of sponsor their their, their state. And you are restricted to those lists of investments that are offered by those custodians I mentioned, Mm -hmm. right? Kind of think of it as like a 401k investment lineup to where it's kind of restricted. I think one of the potential benefits of the Coverdell, which you talked mm-hmm. about, is you could technically invest in anything uh, depending upon who, where that account is held and what their flexibility is. So you could technically put an individual stock in that account where mm-hmm. you couldn't do that in a 529. Yeah, you just have some more flexibility. Yeah, so the limitations obviously are a lot less from a contribution standpoint, but there's some other things on that line that I just want to kind of throw out there that mm-hmm. I don't think it's enough talk in the press. Yeah, no, that was that definitely good to bring up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, back to you. Um, so even though, you know, 529s and Coverdells are the most commonly used, mm-hmm. you can also um, have what's called an UGMA or an UPMA. Yes. Um, so these are custodial accounts that allow you to put money and or assets in a trust for a minor child or a grandchild. Um, you will appoint a trustee mm-hmm. and they'll manage the account until the child reaches age of majority. Um, this could be either 18 to 21 years old, just depending on your state. Correct. Um, and once the child reaches that age, they own the account and can use the money in any manner they wish. Um, so they don't have to use the money for education expenses. Um, I think you know, that's one of the advantages for an Ugmar Upma because, you know, if you establish this really early on in the child's life, you don't know if they're going to go to college. So I think that's why sometimes people choose this route. Correct. Mm-hmm. Um, so although there are no limits on contributions, parents and grandparents, um, again, can cap the individual annual contribution at $16,000 for gift tax purposes. Okay. Um, one thing to be aware of with these accounts, though, 
is that they could count as student assets, mm. um, which could potentially eliminate eligibility for financial aid. Bingo. And you've talked about that topic in the past on different podcasts. I remember you talking about, you know, assets that are in the kid's name um, has a higher degree of, let's say, goes against them harder for FAFSA qualifications, mm-hmm. right, for student aid. Yeah, there, there's a specific calculation that they use. I'll have to bring it up sometime. Um, yeah. But yeah, that they correlate certain percentages between the parents and the and kids. And obviously, if an asset's in the kid's name, it's going to be a higher degree. It's going to hurt them more. Yeah. Because why are they going to get financial aid when they got 50 grand in their name type, in, exactly. type of situation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I would say those are the three most common things to use for education. Yeah, I would agree. Um, but the last thing I did just want to kind of throw in here is that a traditional IRA and a Roth IRA, mm-hmm. um, you can withdraw money from either of those accounts before age 59 and a half without that 10% early withdrawal penalty um, if it's used for qualified higher education expenses. Um, This could be for yourself, your spouse, um, children, or grandchildren. Um, And again, that 10% penalty is wavered. Mm -hmm. Um, You'll still owe income tax if it's a traditional account, but not Roth. Um, Drawbacks are it takes money out of your retirement fund. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, which we just talked about, it could affect the the child's eligibility for financial aid. Mm -hmm. Um, But just thought I'd throw that in there too. I I don't think I'd recommend, you know, using those strictly for education. Well said. Um, But just something important to bring up. Love it. Any other kind of thoughts on the topic? Um, No, I don't think so. Taylor, you always do a good job, I think, explaining these topics in a simplistic fashion that, you know, everyone can understand. And I know that our, our viewer base and listener base is very appreciative of that. So thank you. Oh, good. I try to keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, you do a real good job with it. So uh, we'll be back next week with episode number 164 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Uh, we look forward to seeing you then and have a great rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.
achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.